Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, everyone. It's Claire and Nicole here. We have a super interesting episode for y'all. We just got done chatting with Laura Subrant Yeager. She is an education advocate superstar. She was at the helm of starting three education advocacy groups, TAMSA, which stands for Texans Advocating for Meaningful Student Assessment. She also helped found Texas Educators Vote. And lastly, she's the director of Just Fund at Texas. So she has such a wide knowledge of many of the facets that affect public education. Nicole, what did you think of this talk? I feel like this is just something that I repeat every time, but I learned so much and she had so much to share and it was all so relevant and important. And I think what Laura, her particular strength is, and I know she actually has a presentation that she's working on called Connect the Dots, but I'm glad that she does because I think that best summarizes what she does, which is that she connects the dots because she's such an expert on all of the pieces, right, that affect public education in Texas. And so she really does pull kind of all of the different pressures and the the different data that she has studied and learned about. And she is such an expert. Yes. She's been doing so much of this work. And I think she said she started in 2011. So she has this history of understanding what's been happening in the state. And I just really appreciate the work she's put into it because someone needs to be an advocate for students. And she is very much thinking of them at the forefront, which is wonderful. She also, in the end, talks about the importance of listening to our students and how they're so wise and we can learn so much from them. And sadly, their voices are left out of the conversation a lot of the time. But anyway, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Laura right now. Hi, Laura. We are excited to talk with you today. So can you start out with sharing us a little bit about your journey regarding education advocacy and just a little bit about you and your background? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's a great idea. I think people will really appreciate it. So I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I spent, you know, essentially the first 30 years of my life there and on various other cities on the coasts and in other countries. And I moved to Austin in 1998. I had a one-year-old. My husband was from Texas. I have now been here 24 years. And my background was in international. I had done international trade policy. I was a government major. I studied international affairs and I did policy. I worked, you know, in the federal government. I worked in the private sector. I worked with nonprofits. So I did a little bit of all of it. But I got here and had three kids that I was raising in Texas public schools. And so my interest started, it didn't dawn on me that my policy background would be relevant, but I just, my oldest son was in starting elementary school in kindergarten and there was an issue where the PTA raised enough money to have a Spanish teacher in addition to, you know, all the other stuff they were teaching. And they raised enough money. The teachers actually voted it down. And this was, this kid is now 25. This kid was in kindergarten. The teachers voted it down because there wasn't enough time in the day to have 
Spanish 20 minutes a day, twice a week, and prepare for the tax test. This was before STAR, but this is when I was like, what, what is that tax test? And little by little over the years, I saw this, you know, extreme focus on high stakes standardized testing, what it was doing to learning and the kids. And so like, as I got more involved with the kids' schools, I saw an issue and later, and we can talk about it more, it sort of led me into trying to figure out who did what and in our policy and how to make make change to help all the kids, you know, five and a half million kids in Texas public schools. Yeah. So were you in Austin this whole time? Yep. And the three kids went through Austin ISD public schools. Interesting. I'm curious what happened with that money that didn't go to the Spanish teacher. It got moved to um, the border. No, I'm sorry. That's really tacky. There's other billions of dollars doing that, but we'll, <laughs> yes, we'll talk yes. about that later. Mm, okay. Well, it's interesting, I think, as we're talking to folks who aren't elected officials but are in advocacy work, how it's one little incident that sort of, it's like looking under the rock and you're like, whoa, I, not that they don't like throw it down and walk away. They're like, I got to keep learning more and more and more. And it sounds like that's what happened with you with this particular incident regarding the funds for your child's school. Can I add one thing to that? Yes. So, I mean, that was the first episode, but that same kid in fourth grade brought home their homework. And I noticed that this was a kid who was like, loved learning, loved learning, would go write books in his closet. I mean, it was just a kid bursting with love for going to school and suddenly didn't like going to school. It was fourth grade and he was bringing home either a hundred or a 50 on everything. And I remember looking and I said, well, I don't understand. You got a 50, but all these questions are right. This was math. And he said, oh no, no, it's not if it's right or wrong. It's if we, you do get 50 points if you do it right, but it's about if you circle and highlight and underline and do the test prep the way they were doing it. And he said, mom, I don't there. It doesn't make sense. They're making me memorize stupid stuff. I doesn't have, it's not how I learn. And so little by little, I got more and more involved. And that kid, when that kid was in ninth grade, it was when legislation went into effect, just starting with the ninth graders who are the class of 2015, where there would be 15 end of course exams to graduate, where they would be 15% in your grade, where you could not apply to a Texas school. So that's when TAMSA started. And so I had been building up over the years and then all these, and we can talk more about TAMSA, but all these people came together and it was just one grade. The kids that were older weren't affected by it yet. And we were, and it was just high school that really had these new high stakes put on them. So it was a real lesson in advocacy and in democracy and in civic engagement. And we learned a lot of lessons that I've carried through with all of the other, you know, projects I've undertaken in the next, you know, 15 years. That's super fascinating. Yeah. Right. I went to Texas public schools, graduated from Texas public schools, but it was before the things that you're talking about. And then when I taught, the highest grade level I taught was second. I avoided, (laughs) you know, testing years. Mm -hmm. And so my relationship with all of this is pretty much on the outskirts. So it's really interesting to hear it all from your point of view, Mm -hmm. because I haven't experienced it either as a teacher or a former student. That was fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so why don't we go ahead and talk about TAMSA? Can you tell us about that organization, Texans Advocating for Meaningful Student Assessment? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And so that start, we really started, it was right after the 2011 session when the legislation had been passed previously. Again, all these kids were the class of 2015. And I heard at a PTA meeting at Anderson High School that there was this new law. It was going to like really mess with the kids. The teachers were kind of freaked out. And across the state, they didn't know how to integrate it. And so what serendipitously came together was a journalist a child psychiatrist, an attorney, 
a dispute resolution expert. I had a policy background, a board, me- a school board member. And so we came together and it ended up, this was an issue that superintendents and principals and teachers had been talking about forever at the legislature, but the parent voice had not been there. And we ended up starting this group. We were very thoughtful about the name. We were not against testing. We were for meaningful, engaging learning and diagnostic testing that would be of value to teachers and parents and students. And what happened was when we, you know, some of the lessons we learned that that we can talk about it and just fund it and other things was we did our research and we said, oh, well, what, first of all, we went to the school board and they said, we can't, we can't do anything. We said, well, who does? And so the attorneys went and talked to TEA and that sort of got things bustling a little bit. And then we said, well, the legislature makes these laws. So we then did our research about what happens in other states across the country, what the requirements were federally, where these decisions were made. And we went and did white papers and presentations and met with parents across the state who sort of sighed this collective relief that somebody was helping them understand what was required, what we were doing, where it was in the context of what other states were doing. And we were so much farther above and beyond in high state standardized testing. You know, it all started in Texas and we were, you know, leading and we still are a little bit. And then we educated people, we engaged them, and then we empowered them to advocate. People came to the Capitol, they called and called and called. So Governor Perry would not veto the legislation that brought it from 15 end of course exams down to five that took it out of the grades. I mean, it was a, everyone told us it would take decades. And we, in that one session, got it done. And then subsequently, there's been little bitty more. We've done each time the individual graduation committees, but it's a, it's a tough road. I mean, people make a lot of money off that. It was not easy, but it was one time when democracy really, I feel like triumphed. And when House Bill 5 passed, which incorporated those changes, Everyone in the aisle from the Senate, for example, from Wendy Davis to Dan Patrick, all wanted to be in the picture with us when that bill was signed. So I'm not sure they all would still, but it was really interesting. And then just one thing I will add in terms of sort of tying it back, growing up in D.C., it was surrounded by people who were civil servants, who were experts in their field. We were really, my dad was a labor lawyer. My mom did, you know, PR for hotels. We weren't, I mean, we didn't do political stuff. I stayed away from Capitol Hill seemed unseemly. I didn't want to deal with that. But, you know, those people make decisions. So you can know your stuff, all there is. But unless you have any interaction with the people who are making the decisions, it's really hard to get big changes. So I learned that lesson coming to Texas. Yeah. Okay. I was, as you were talking, it was making me think, can you just catch us, catch us up to speed a little bit on the history? So was it in 2011 that the high stakes testing really kicked into gear and that's when y'all started to push back against it or was it a different time? So from when it started in like around 2000, when No Child Left Behind started, when, you know, it was started with George Bush here, they ratcheted it up. It started with like basic tests. Then there were basic tests with stakes attached. Then it became more of the accountability system. So like I have a chart I can show you that it just, it got more and more invasive and more and more being used for more and more things. And then the high stakes on students, I'd have to go back and look. But that 15 and in your grades, I mean, it's insane. It was just, it was, they went too far and it woke people up. And so once people's parents started making noise, you know, we got some feedback like, oh, no, 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 shh, we'll give you the 15%. We'll take it out of grades, but shh, 
but the sort of giant had been awakened and parents were like, no, no, we've looked and this whole thing is messed up. We really need to, we need to change things. So, and the high stakes, I will give you an example. So like there are requirements, you know, it's no longer no child left behind. It's the every student succeeds act. ESSA now oversees, you know, accountability. And there are requirements every year from third to eighth grade, you need to read English and a math test. No requirement anyone pass. It's a reporting requirement. And then once English, math, and science in high school, and then science once in elementary, once in middle. We have more tests than are required by federal law. And when TAMSA started, there were probably 27 states, and we had a whole you know handout on this, that required tests to be passed for kids to graduate. It's down to 10, but we still have them. It's clearly moving away from that. The same as colleges are seeing that there is racial and economic bias in standardized tests. There is a value. We don't want people to be, I mean, there was a, there was a reason I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt that there was, you know, that we weren't shining a light and seeing where there were kids being left behind. Right. I see a point in disaggregating data and looking and seeing what the issues were. But the problem is, I think the goal was to shine a light and provide resources And we've sort of flipped it on its head and we've used this as a like punishable offense. And we take away resources and close schools, kids who have some of the greatest needs often, you know, the, how kids do on these tests really does follow along with economic income often, and they lose recess and they lose electives and they get more tutoring. And that's not what makes kids want to go into go to school. And it, you know, there's lots of data showing it's fueling the school to prison pipeline. So valuable diagnostic tests. And for me, I think it's all about meaningful, engaging learning for kids. So, but there was a hearing yesterday. It was disappointing. I will say, because pretty much every single person invited, save one was from the test and punish approach. Oh no. What's the logic behind that approach? And then can you also, just for people who really are a little unclear, what you mean by test and punish? So, okay, I'm going to answer Claire's question first. I think what's hard is I feel like a lot of education reform, and I'm putting it in quotes for those of you who can't see, a lot of people think you can get to equity just through testing. And there's a strong component of that from people in the business community. And I think it's misguided. I believe our public schools were created as a public good to enrich and engage and raise human beings to be who they were meant to be and really nourish their gifts. But I think a business model looks at, you know, carrots and sticks And, you know, it's the same model that said we should pay the teachers more if they can get the kids back to school as if teachers weren't trying to get kids back to school. It's the same model that says we should have outcomes-based funding and pay more if kids do better on tests. It's the same model that really thinks people are motivated only by money, which is not why teachers teach and which is not what gets kids excited to learn. And I I think it's also part of a long-term plan to privatize public schools. I'm just going to come out there and say it. Right. I mean, you're not the only one as <laughs> so we've mm. been having these conversations. Yeah, this is a recurring theme, that's uh, for sure. <laughs> yes. It seems like that's the through line and that's the end goal we're hearing some people have. 
with public education in Texas. I'm not sure how it is with other states. Are other states doing it differently, like not this carrot stick model and doing it well? None of the groups I'm a part of are partisan or political. And public education should be an apolitical, you know, in Texas, we've avoided a lot of the, you know, privatization schemes that have come in other more conservative states because rural Republicans and urban Democrats have worked together. I mean, public ed is the the public schools are the center of communities, especially in small rural communities. You know, the football game, it's the number one employer. So like we've resisted a lot of more conservative states have vouchers, which they're going to push again this session, have, you know, our charters have grown enormously. And I looked at some data recently to show that, you know, the amount of money we're spending on those are, is triple what it was, even though it, it, we can come back to some of the data and I can send you a lot of things. This is a nationwide push. And if you go back and look and see Brown versus Board of Education was, took place in, was it 1954? Mm -hmm. And in 1955, Milton Milton Friedman floated the first idea of vouchers. Mm. It is not unrelated. Yes. It makes me think of this book I have over here, Democracy in Chains. Have you read it? And and it sort of explains public education in in the United States. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Connecting the dots. It's connecting the dots. And I am working on a connecting the dots presentation that ties all of this together. But, I mean, the way you privatize, you underfund, you make things not work. You make people mad and little by little you sell stuff off. And I would say we will talk about underfunding, which we are at the bottom of the barrel and funding our schools through the testing and accountability system. We're making things not work. Teachers don't want to teach that way. Kids don't want to learn that way. We're putting a scarlet letter on them with our A through F system. And then we're ramping up the charters and we got some strong incumbents and candidates pushing for vouchers. So yeah. If you're looking at a broken system, of course, you want to just, yeah, give it that final little push, tear it down. And hey, here comes somebody with a rescue plan. that, And it's a lot of money. Different. Yeah. Well, let's take a little bit of a step back. I'm just curious because TAMSA stands for Texans Advocating for Meaningful Student Assessment. And when I hear assessment and accountability, I like sometimes put them together. Can you like just, can you separate them for us and tell mm-hmm. us the difference between assessment and accountability? Mm -hmm. Yes. And they should be different. We have conflated them in Texas, I would say, because our accountability system is all based on assessment. So assessment is just testing. Teachers do assessment all day or, you know, all the time. And, you know, so there are local assessments. There are different kinds of assessments. And I'm not going to get into, you know, formative. I mean, testing. Assessment is a testing. Accountability is, you know, you give this... So accountability, I kind of think we're doing it backwards. Accountability is making sure you get what you what you want when you give someone something. I think that's my very lame interpretation. So I feel like the taxpayers should look at the legislature and say, we're giving you all this money. Are you giving us what we want? It's not really what it's, how it's happening. What that is, is the state saying we're spending billions of dollars on public schools. You need to show us your report card. You need to show us what you're doing with that money. And the way we're going to look at it is stuff that's countable, right? Which is standardized testing. Test scores, yeah. Uh-huh. And there are different models of accountability. And ESSA opened it up. But, you know, they encouraged states to have accountability systems that were not just test-focused. 
But what Texas did was they took the opportunity then just to say, well, we'll just have the federal accountability match with what we're already doing at the state. And so our accountability system, it is an A through F system, which has been pushed predominantly in conservative states. It had passed in Virginia once and the realtors saw what it was doing to their home values and they got rid of it. Right. Facet, yes. Yeah, I, I have. I'm a real estate. Well, I'm sort of a real estate agent. I don't do a lot of real estate, but yes, I mean this. The school rating is so integral to the price of your home. And I live out here in Del Valley, which historically was not rated well, and people were like, "It's not a good district." And I'm like, "Based on what? Have you gone to the schools? Have you talked to the teachers? Have you talked to the administrators? Have you toured? I mean, they're wonderful. I love them. I'm so, so supportive." So that's one thing that, that is interesting. So our accountability system in K through eight is just based on star, right? Or three through eight, just based on star. And in high school, it's got a few other measures. Most of them are still star related. It's slicing and dicing things differently, but you could throw in the SAT scores and you can do, you know, a little other stuff, but it's predominantly that. But when they, just to give an example, you don't have to make any schools fail. You, I mean, if To me, the goal of an accountability system is to say, we want everyone to thrive. We want kids to do well. We want schools to do well. And we want districts to do well. But we have this sort of, they're pushing this scarcity model that some have to do good and some have to do bad. So when they tried at one point, and I'm on the APAC committee, Accountability Policy Advisory Committee for the state where we advise the commissioner on how to interpret the accountability laws, he doesn't have to listen to us. I'll just leave it at that. But they said, well, what if in the lower grades, we included another measure? So just to give you an example, they said, let's do attendance, right? So they looked at the attendance numbers. And in elementary schools, kids generally go to school. So the averages were from, let's say, 95 to 100%. So what they did, instead of saying, great, everyone gets bumped up, they made 95 an F and they made 100 an A. So 97 was a C. So all the elementary schools got really bad ratings. So to me, that is not seeing how we're doing. That is pulling numbers on a number line, which is what we do with standardized tests because we want winners and losers. And the country, the federal government does need you to report the lowest 5%, but the lowest 5% could be a B if they're all doing well. We think that that means we need to make the lowest 5% an F or more. So it's... There's a lot of power in what TEA can do and how they can interpret the laws, and that grows every time. So that one example shows you that this is about norming things and making winners and losers, which then fuels that system. This is reminding me, Nicole, of our conversation with Dr. Telly. Dr. Telly, I knew you were going to say it 100%. She she was talking about, yeah, the way that the ratings come out, and it's not about like lifting all the kids up. It's about having kids perform really, really high instead of like everyone just being where they should be grade level wise and how this is, I'm probably not explaining it well, but the system just isn't, a, like you said, it's about scarcity, winners and losers, not let's make sure all our children are being educated and thriving. Yeah. It's a it's good hard, plug it's hard for, to the, hear. <laughs> for the Dr. Telly episode because yeah, it also reminds me of the unintended consequences conversation that she seems to have made it her mission to point out these unintended consequences Because I guess if you are, this is, I'm going to assume the best, right? Kind of what you did, Laura, earlier, which is give grace, which is that if you aren't aware of the systems that you set up and when you set it up that way, what the consequences are, you know, then you're going to keep moving forward with that same model, right? So, 
Oh boy. Can I give one other example of that? So yes, that's please. with accountability, but with the tests, for example, and I learned this from John Tanner, who's brilliant, who you might want to have on at some point too. He's an expert on accountability, but the way he explained it was like, I think of a test. I think of it like a teacher. Like, let's say it's physics. I was bad at physics. So, right. But I might get the first question, right. You know, like, let's say it's on a chapter, maybe the first half the chapter I'd understand. So maybe I think I'd get a 50 on my test. But what they do is they, they put out the sample questions and they see, they do the field testing and the questions, I think it was, I don't know, 70 or 80% of kids. If there's a question that 70 or 80% of kids are going to get right, they won't put it on the test. And if there's a question that 70 or 80% of the kids are going to get wrong, they won't put it on the test. They want questions that like half and half are going to be, so they will spread more over your number line. So they're not actually testing to see if you understand the material. They're looking again to sort. This is all about sorting. So I get it if you want to sort for your accountability system and say which ones are doing the best and the worst, but to tell kids they can graduate or not graduate based on stuff that's pulling out things that really maybe you understand the vast proportion of the material that's not fair. And it's not honest to parents and yeah. teachers on what we're testing. So yeah. When wow, you say they, was... do you mean like the test takers or TEA? Like who's the they that is doing this? So there's a whole industry. Uh, I mean, there's a whole career called be- psycho being like a psychometrician. They're test makers. There's a whole field and every district has psychometricians as well. And TEA is full of psychometricians. Like that's how you make a test. That's how you make a standardized test. That's how you differentiate one kid from another. And I get it, but we're saying, we're seeing, are they doing well? And it's not. Are you doing better or worse than someone else? And it may be that someone's doing better than someone else, but if they're all doing well, yay us. Right. Yay teachers, (laughs) you know, especially given how little funding we have, right? So I just feel like it's being set up to give a narrative that we're failing, which been pushing since the Reagan era, right? Yeah. The other emphasis that just really jumps out is that the, again, the emphasis seems to be on uh, being a skilled task taker, test taker. I think I said task, test taker (laughs) and not at all looking at the quality of the questions and are they measuring what kids have been taught and what we hope that they are learning it is about the question itself, the question design, which isn't like, we don't need to test the effectiveness of the question. It's not coming out right. (laughs) My brain knows what I'm thinking, but do you know what I mean? I feel like actually what you're talking about is they're measuring the psychometricians that you talked about. And can they design a a question that's a little bit tricky? Mm -hmm. Or are we testing kids and what they are actually learning and how it moves them forward as a learner. And that, it, yeah. Yes, that totally makes sense. And what it does on top of it is, if you want to talk about equity, almost every one of these tests is testing reading, right? They're testing language, they're testing reading. So when we look at the tests at the high school level, there are five that you have to pass to graduate when there are only three required to be given in high school to start with. And there are these individual graduation committees that we and others push that are there that maybe you can use for if you fail two, right? But the two that fail, get failed the most are English two and social studies. And the kids that fail the most are suffering from dyslexia or English language learners, or I think we should say emerging bilinguals. These are kids that may be brilliant in the I subject. I have a dyslexic being, student. Uh. Yes. And 
there are kids in dual language who are so much better equipped to be members of our society and brilliant in the workforce. But when you test them in third grade, for example, they're like two thirds of the way in English and in whatever other language they speak. Mm-hmm. And they do really badly on the reading test. And then they get pulled out of dual language because it's all about the test scores. Oh, no. (laughs) It's not fueling good practice. And so on those APAC committee meetings, I raise my hand and say, you're pushing policies that are forcing educators to make decisions that are not in the best interest of children. I just feel like that's my job to raise my hand and say that. Well, we're thankful you do that. Because we better need voices like that. (laughs) It's not getting us that far, but I do, you know, I'll say it over and over. At least there's that voice in the room because I'm sure if there's not, they just assume we're all good. Two things are really jumping out at me, right? Just in this moment, there's a thousand things overall. But is that, yes, we're so grateful that you are that voice in the room and also that you're shining light on these issues. The way that you just described how questions are chosen and the way that you described the attendant thing was just mind blowing. I can see how some those particular things could really just become so accepted that nobody would even think to stop and question. So shining a light. Thank you. And being a voice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I know this is going to take a long time to, I think like let it soak in. Yeah. It's, I don't know why I keep thinking about this, but like I keep thinking about the idea of like form and function and like the form of the test isn't enhancing like the function of really assessing children, it sounds like. And it's like, why is our form so messed up? I, that's, that's very, that bothers me a lot. So, I mean, I have raised with, you know, Commissioner Morath and others, there is a system, there's a, there's a group of, there's a consortium. It's the high, what's it called? New York Performance Standards Consortium. It's a group of maybe 20 or 30 schools. It started in like Brooklyn and one of the other boroughs in New York City where they got an exemption from the state regents exams. They still have to do some, but they got an exemption. And it is meaningful, engaging, project-based learning, portfolio method. Kids are doing projects that bring in science and social studies. They're writing and they're reading and there's a math element and they're working with their communities. They are partnering with businesses and nonprofits. And these are kids in communities that often were not having college-going kids or success in, you know, postgraduate work, post-high school work. They're doing fantastic. And I've said, you know, that's, why can't we do that? And, and I will say that's like one of the few things that the commissioner and I agree on. He's like, oh yeah, no, that's the idea, but that costs a lot. Oh, okay. So maybe we should talk about money. <laughs> There's our segue. Money. And, and do you want me to tell you real quickly, like how I got from the TAMSA onto these other? Yes, that'd be great. So that it was, well, tell it, was it TAMSA first and then you ended up getting into the other groups? Yeah. So again, I mean, I was here, I had three little kids. I got involved. I was involved with their schools. I was working part-time and I, you know, sort of accidentally got involved with education policy and, you know, and it's a different topic, but I, I learned sort of how it worked. But then I went and worked for an association called TAX, ironically, <laughs> and that represented the superintendents in all the small school districts. And I was on their government relations team, but I basically listened to all the hearings, the Senate and the House education hearings, and reported back to the like 970 superintendents of the small school districts. And that's when I was like, oh, assessment and the accountability. Oh, and that's kind of related to the funding and oh, some of the teacher issues and all this stuff sort of fit together to me because I was watching not just the assessment hearings, right? 
And That's so picture. after yeah. the 2015 session, I think I worked with them for a couple of sessions. I went and listened to Harvey Kromberg from the Quorum Report talk about voting. And he said that, you know, Texas was at that point last in voter turnout. And, and the Annette Strauss Institute does studies and, and Texas always is last in political discussion. And I went back to work and said, well, what if we were to like focus on getting people to vote? Just to vote. Let's try to create a culture of voting so that when these kids grow up, Texas isn't last in voting because I'm all about democracy. So that's when I started Texas Educators Vote, which now has like 30, 31 partners where I just generate messages about this is how you register, research and vote and model that for kids. So that was sort of the next thing. I run that still. And then in 2018, when my youngest then, I mean, the, the oldest was like finishing college and the next one was off in college. And the youngest was a junior at McCallum High School here. And kids were, I, she came home and said, mom, people are freaking out. Kids are crying in the hall. Parents are up in arms. Austin ISD had a budget deficit of $30 million. And there were these budget stabilization task force meetings where they were trying to figure out what to do and everything was on the table. And one of the things on the table was maybe getting rid of the Fine Arts Academy, which is a greatly beloved institution here in Austin ISD and a fantastic, you know, like just warm, nurture, just an awesome place. I love McCallum. And so that's when I got put together with Allison Alter, who is a city council member, and Janice Bookout, who heads Earth Day Austin. We all had kids at McCallum. And we said, well, and, and to me, I was sort of pulling on my TAMSA model, like, let's do the research for the people. Let's educate them and engage them. And so we had an offshoot meeting at McCallum where 200 parents showed up. Wow. And we said, this is how school funding works. We're heading into the 2018 legislative session, the 2019 session. We had just had an election. People voted. They voted. Educators voted like never before. There was a big issue with school funding. And we said, look, you can be mad at AISD for whatever reason, plenty of reasons, but this is about the state. And so we educated them on how school funding works. And then ultimately, you know, I worked with different partners that I knew through my public education advocacy to grow this into a statewide organization of parents and students advocating for funding our schools. So that's where Just Fund It came from. So regarding funding, Mike Marath is like, we could have these amazing models, but we don't have the money. Why don't we have more money? Why don't we put more money into public education? Do we put enough money in? I guess we should start with asking. I'm assuming no, but we've seen the data. <laughs> yeah, We're on the low end, the way low end. Can you just talk to us about funding in general and why we just don't have enough money for the nice things that we want and really the, the students want and the communities want? What's happening? So, I mean, we do spend a lot on public ed, but we have 11% of the country's children. There are 5.5 million kids, right? We, I just looked at the data, the quality count survey that Education Week does, the most recent school funding one they did last June had us, it, you know, ranks us, I think, you know, four years ago, we were 43rd, maybe we're 42nd or 41st. But if you actually look, and these are, this data is looking at inflation and sort of averaging out the cost of living different places. If you actually look at spending, we're 49th per kid. The wow. only ones lower are Utah and Arizona. The national average is $4,300 more per kid than Texas is spending. So the national average, when we went into 2019 and before House Bill 3, when they added like $6 billion, right? 
they add maybe $5 billion in property tax to relief. But just in funding the schools, they added some. But the national average went up, and all the other states did too. We really almost just dug ourselves out of the cuts we had made in 2011. So while I appreciate that the state, without a lawsuit, you know, a judge ruling that they had to put more in, they did put more in. But we are still at the bottom of the barrel. And we are still at 68% of the national average. We're doing well in all the measures, given that we so poorly fund them. The only thing that costs more, I think, is healthcare, which has surpassed public ed. But it costs something. And there's a good, you know, there's a good article that Ray Perryman, the Texas economist, wrote saying that that is the single best investment. Public education, it comes back 50-fold. There's no other investment that comes back 50-fold. It does make you wonder the hesitancy of our elected leaders. I think it's political. I think Vicki Vicky Goodwin, who you interviewed before, said it very diplomatically to say, you know, we have a conservative legislature that does not like to spend. But I will add, and then I'll be quiet and wait for your next question, that the comptroller spoke to the legislature, both to the Senate and the House Finance and Appropriations Committees, just a few weeks ago and said, we are rolling in the dough. He said, we have 27 billion extra dollars. It is like Christmas every day. We should invest in infrastructure and public education is part of infrastructure. Sadly, what I saw from the Senate Finance Committee was horror. Like, people will get used to having (laughs) things. Yeah. Like, what are you saving this money for? Like, you can't take it with you when you're gone. You can't, I mean, if you're in that position, spend the money if there's money. Tax and someone's relief. telling you. Uh, Tax relief. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it does make you want to, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go somewhere you can go, but I mean, if you want to look at who's in our public schools, I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> people need to vote. We're, Sorry. we're being diplomatic. I'm going to keep I'm, my big mouth closed on some, you know, assumptions I can Well, make. you know, what we're here to do is lay the groundwork and let people draw their own conclusions. Yes. So groundwork is being laid. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back because we've heard a lot about this in our discussions in our education series about the basic allotment. How is this even determined for, for students? So the basic allotment is like just a very bottom building block that every kid gets. And it's like, I don't even know, six, seven. I mean, it's not the, you know, right now, if you look, the average per kid is $9,369 in Texas. And nationwide is 13,679. But the basic allotment is this basic amount. And there are other people you can talk to who are school finance experts. But on top of that, you get a certain amount if you are an English language learner. You get an extra amount if you're an at-risk student. You get an extra amount if you have, I mean, they just added dyslexia. That was new. There's a special ed amount. And some of it, some of those funds do come from the federal government. I mean, 92% of funding is state state and local put together. A tiny, I mean, a very small person is federal dollars and that comes through Title I, right? So there are formulas that have not been updated since like 1980 something. And so each kid carries a different weight, but the basic allotment is the very basic building block, but it's lower than the average amount because kids get added on for different things. Okay. Sorry, that may not be super clear. 
No, I and I feel like Claire. I don't know if I'm reading your mind, but I, I feel <laughs> like maybe like what's underneath what you're asking is how in the world did they come to that number, and why is that the one we're using as the basis? And it seems like maybe we just kind of arrived here. So what's hard is the legislature is hesitant to add a bunch because it's a two-year legislature. It's a two-year thing. So like they can put something in, but they could take it back out. And so they always say, well, no, we don't want to make decisions that are going to affect future legislatures when we're not here. But that gets into, I mean, and if you want to talk about, I mean, how the local property taxes like funnel in, but I would think what would be a great thing to do, which they did 20, 30 years ago was a cost of education. Like if we really, if we wanted to be the gold standard or even the silver or the bronze or whatever, but if we wanted to provide what we really thought kids needed to have a great education and be one of the best, that would be a cost of education study. They haven't done it because they're going to find it's going to cost a lot more than they're spending. And when you even look at like Texas likes to be number one. So when I say we're 43rd, 41st, 49th, to be at the national average, just to give you an example, it would cost $47 billion this biennium. 20, to be at the national average. To be average, to right. be 25th, right? They don't have that, but we do need to continually get closer. And so what I was going to say is maybe 30 years ago, they did do this study. And what they did then was they didn't put that much in. For that time, they said, this is the cost to educate. And I don't know if they gave a quarter, a third. They gave some fraction of it. So we we never have fully funded it. It costs a lot. But if you do look and see that our kids are the future of the state, even if you don't like just discount it as they are humans who deserve to be invested in, but if you just want to look at it as what you're going to get back, we should be funding it. And we do have the money, I will say. And I will add that we got a lot of money in federal money. And one thing that just funded did last time was we had to fight to get a penny of that money. Bill $15 billion ended up going to our public schools. And we had to work with some people in Congress to understand what Texas was doing with the money because the people in charge did not want to pass that money along to our school districts. And we were not getting a full story of what was happening with the first couple rounds of COVID relief dollars. Right. And so that's when, when you talk to advocates, you know, listen to the people in charge, but look outside, see what other places are doing yeah. and get more information because sometimes it benefits people not to tell you when they are in power and they have all the power and they don't want to do what you think is right. So I'm going to give a personal shout out to Lloyd Doggett's office for helping mm -hmm. us understand what was going on <laughs> with, with federal dollars in other states and in our own. Yes. The thing I keep thinking is one, it's incredible what Texas is doing considering how little they have. Like, mm -hmm. man, are we resourceful? And number two, yes. if we have all this money, that's, I mean, the money, what do you do with money? You spend it, you, you invest. So if some voices are saying, this is not the thing we want to put our money in, I'm like, well, then for what? Like, what is so much, what's better to you than education, than investing in our students? I can't, as a mother, as a community member, I can't think of what would be a more noble thing than education. So for me, this is a little challenging. Like, come on, guys, this well, is the thing. <laughs> so one argument they they give, they give, you know, one, those billions of federal dollars, they were like, well, districts are going to get them, but then they're going to go away and they're going to look to us to match that, right? 
The same with this money that's in the pot now, like ongoing costs. So that's their worry is people will get used to nice things <laughs> to having things. And the people that are electing them are not fans of paying taxes. I'm just going to say a lot of people move to Texas because they don't pay so many taxes, which I guess is good if you're a business. But at a certain point, you want roads, you want educated people, you want infrastructure. I think it's going to come back and bite them in the butt, honestly. And we do have high property taxes because we've chosen not to have other taxes. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways to raise money that no one will discuss at least who's in charge now. Yeah. That's such well, an important point. Yeah. this yeah. Because what we're talking about, from my point of view, opinion moment, is completely unsustainable, right? At some point, this is going to burn out. If we keep going in this direction, if we don't make different choices and decisions, there's no way long-term that this model can sustain and keep this state thriving. It's just not possible. And- So can I say to me then, when I look and see how few people vote in the state of Texas, I'm just going to bring this to my favorite part of all of it, is we pick the people who make the decisions at every single level, from school board up until the president of the United States of America. And I did this great little graphic I'm going to give a plug for it. It's on the Texas Educators Vote website called Who Does What? Just in Public Education. And you can look by elected position and you can look by issue. And then, so the model for tax educators vote, we don't tell people who to vote. We don't endorse candidates or parties or measures or anything else, but figure out who does what you research people who are, you can vote on and you pick the people who align with you. And I really think people don't vote because they don't understand how it relates to their everyday life. So to me, there are two parts of engagement, picking the people. And then whether you get who you picked or didn't, you engage with them, right? I had a school board candidate who I hadn't supported. I supported someone else. The day that person was elected, I called them. I talked to them about my school. I invited them to things. So you engage in the electoral process and then you engage with the elected officials. And then if you don't like how they're doing, you run or you get someone else to run. It's like a continuous circle. And once you connect it to your everyday life, whether it's education or something else, I think that's how we're going to get people out and be more engaged in their democracy, which to me is by far the most important thing. Yeah. I'm glad you made that segue because I wanted to ask you, how do you think we just, how do you think we get more diverse candidates to run? Because I think a lot of people don't vote because they don't see themselves in the candidates. And I'll speak from experience. I ran for state representative for House District 51, and we were a little bit of an anomaly because there were seven of us running. So there was quite a variety to pick from, lots of diversity. I think it was great that so many of us threw our hat in the rings. But typically, we were the biggest race, by the way, for state representative in the state. But normally it's one, two. A lot of people are discouraged. It's not your turn. Don't run. I mean, how do we get people to take that plunge and, and encourage them that you should run? Well, I mean, I appreciate your running. And I think for one is we have this part-time legislature. We have unpaid school board members. Like if you need to have a job and you need to like feed your children or have a shelter, you probably can't go spend all your time running for something. And so we've got this five months of every two years that people are in the legislature and school board. I mean, It's crazy the amount of money you have to raise. It's crazy the amount of time. And it limits who can run. And it also limits, I think, 
how good a job people can do. Like if you're in the legislature and you also like run a business, like in my international trade policy, I did work. Like I covered some Central American countries. I'm just giving an example. And when I was covering Costa Rica, we were noticing that they were protecting ornamental plants. So we would go have our negotiations with their foreign trade minister. And I'm like, why are they doing that? Well, they had a part-time legislature and the guy who was their foreign trade minister had an ornamental plant company. I feel like we see that in our legislature sometime. So if you really want to have a broad range of people who can run and a broad range of people and have them actually listen and do what's right for the community, they can't have to also like go make money doing something else. So, so there's that. And I also just think just on public education, I just want to make a shout out. Like, I think the most important thing is to, to look and see like what voices are missing. And to me, the voices are missing are the students. Mm-hmm. No one is listening to the students. They're wise. They're living this. They're hiding under desks, practicing getting slaughtered. Mm-hmm. They're watching their friends take their lives. They're doing stupid, mind-numbing test prep. Like, I just think the number one question for any time there's policy making being done is like, who is this policy going to affect and why are they not sitting here advising us? Ooh, Amen. So should we be advocating for state representatives to make a livable wage and school board members and SBOE? I mean, I'm blown away that some of these people make zero dollars, zero dollars for all the work they do. And like you're saying, they still have to fundraise and ask other people for money. Well, the answer to who can do that is very, very clear. Excuse the age, the race, the income. It just, it perpetuates our inequities and... I, have, I think it's hard to make change until you change that a little bit. And I can't believe I find myself wanting to um, <laughs> offer grace. But I, I think what I am recognizing is that sometimes I'm so quick to jump into these things and, and just basically breathe fire because I'm so frustrated. But I just, it like occurred to me that, you know, that's based on an old tradition. That's a model that just it doesn't fit where we are today. And so I think it just, we need a hard look at a tradition that doesn't doesn't fit, right? The tradition of, who can afford to do public service and that that is sort of your duty as a, you know, almost like a thank you for the gifts that you've been given and yada, yada, yada. But that is not, I I believe that that's not a model that fits where we are now. I'll add one thing to that is because of the nature of our legislature, not only through all of these groups did we have to educate the general public, we had to educate the legislature, (laughs) right? Like they don't have time or the background to know everything about everything. So when we would go in, what, no, whatever the topic was and say, Hey, thank you so much for talking about funding. But did you know that it would cost $44 billion to be average? I had legislators come out and be like, what, what, hold on. And you tell them the data and they're like, Oh, I had no idea. They thought they were just doing something great and that it was going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. So it makes the advocate even more important and to talk to every single person and to really be a resource for staffers, for legislators, for associate, for everyone, because time and knowledge is short. You know what I mean? Like you need to, if you can help people be better at their jobs, which are hard and unfunded, then, and the same at every level, same with school board, the same with the super, you know, I just think engaging at every level and wherever you have any expertise, being willing to provide that. That's part of a society and part of civic engagement. Yeah. You're already touching this, but what have you found that's been successful in your advocacy work? Has it been 
getting really simple to understand one sheets or how do you break through if you have five minutes with them to get your point across quickly? I think the one pager with bullets is really good. I think people have, you know, quick, I mean, if it's, they're gonna, there's going to be a hearing and a vote, you go talk to people in the halls. I think it's making pals with staffers and texting them during the hearing. I've been successful when we were hearing that, you know, Texas wasn't sending any of the federal dollars along. I would tweet directly and tag the legislators that were asking questions at a hearing. I would send a, a, a message like whatever method that you think people are listening, you get it out there, you know, because you just need their attention. And legislators are often on Twitter as are their staffs. People, I think t- like teachers used to be more on Facebook. Now it seems a little more Instagram, whatever you can do to be a resource and to know how you can get somebody's attention politely and respectfully. And what's been most successful is when we've met with people in any of these, we've said, we come in peace. We are here to help you. Mm-hmm. We are here to provide information. And if you have legislation that is good, we have an army of people who can come and testify for your legislation and provide backup for you. But if you're going to do stuff that's bad, you're going to hear from us too. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> Very fair. I mean, right? That's the job. But can you tell your stuff, I think just be, be educating yourself and being knowledgeable. Can you tell us about a moment when you were surprised by a reaction from an elected official or a staffer, someone that you thought like, we're not going to get this person, but here we are. Let's try anyway. Did you have any of those moments recently? I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think people are looking for common ground. I think I have found the House to generally be more responsive to people. They're closer to their community and the Senate isn't. And I'm not going to give a specific name, but a senator that was just won an election in an extremely conservative race. And it is from a spot that I don't think they're likely to support public ed. They sat with public ed advocates for three hours and said, where can we come together? Where can we save money? Where can we cut out, you know, bureaucracy? They're not going to agree on all the same stuff, but there were some areas of overlap. And to me, it's the same as when there was a school board member elected who I knew I wasn't going to agree with, but they would listen. They would listen and look for something that they could overlap with and support. I think we need more of that because, I mean, we can't really get further apart on those things. But public ed is the one thing that has like brought together sides that generally have been on opposite sides, but sadly it's public has been weaponized politically nationwide. And I, I mean, I hope we can bridge that in the state of Texas, but it all depends on how many people are willing to participate in elections and at, you know, during sessions. Yes. I have some last thoughts, but Nicole, do you have any burning questions? Well, I would love for you to talk about advocacy, I guess, even just, just a little bit more. You're so, you have such a, a policy background that I think I, as a, as an average person, find myself like, oh, but what could I do? So I think I'd love for you to kind of break it down, like just really, I guess, small steps, you know, mm-hmm. that anybody, any, anybody could do. So I would say like right now, you know, it's a couple months before an election, I would say you look and see who's running for whatever it is in your area. Go to like vote 411, which is the League of Women Voters, and it'll tell you who you vote for. And listen to candidate forums, whether it's city council or county or the legislature. Think about what's most important to you. Reach out to them and say, hey, 
this is my, you know, I care about whatever it is. I care about if my kid's going to get shot at school. I care about the planet imploding. I care about, I mean, maybe you care about keeping your gun, whatever it is. Maybe you don't want to pay taxes. I don't know what it is. Whatever your issue is, you talk to all the candidates. They come to your door. Talk to them. I've invited like I have five city council candidates. I've had three of them come to my door. I ask them questions. I say, this is important to me. Tell me how you're different. Just asking and listening if there's a forum, reading the newspaper and looking at, you know, the groups that you like, who they support and groups that you disagree with, who they support. So that's the basic part with that. But then engaging wherever it is. Is it your church? Is it your temple? Is it your school board? You know, just sort of keeping a pulse. And if there's something that you care about, because there's got to be something that everybody cares about, getting involved at whatever level. Yeah. And I want to throw out something else too that is underlying all of this, which is just the belief that you have, you have the right to say what you care about and you have the right to ask questions. And I think that it's very easy to feel overwhelmed and overlooked and to think that you don't have those rights. I think that is like the most important thing. And to be more specific, you could go to a meeting, you could get on a Zoom, you could send an email, you could make a phone call, you could send a tweet, you could, I mean, there's simple, quick ways. And if you don't have the time to do it on your own, join a group that talks about whatever you care about the most, they will send you simple ways that you can send a simple email. I mean, personal stories is what makes a difference. I saw at the legislature when a parent would come in and say, my kid has a scholarship, they're a brilliant physics student, but they're dyslexic and they're having a hard time on this reading test. And they got a scholarship for this, that, or the other thing, but they can't graduate from high school. I mean, stories, like that's what people remember when there's too much information coming at them. Mm -hmm. Just a human story, a kind human story and treat people with respect. But I think they want to hear your stories, most people. And if they don't, then pick somebody else. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I love that. So don't underestimate the power of storytelling, especially if you do it in a kind way and respectful way and from the heart. Sounds like it's very powerful for a lot of these folks who are in are in positions of power. The last thing I want to ask you about is regarding public education. As we've touched on, there's so much to keep tabs on, so many different elected officials who are connected to public education. What's like maybe the one or two things that you really recommend parents pay attention to or that they could do to have a positive impact on their students' educational experience? That's big. I mean, I think parents... I mean, in today's day and age, everybody's busy. Teachers are busy. Parents are busy. I think as a parent, the most important thing I did was listen to my kids. The most important mm-hmm. thing that I did was try to see who they were. I start to cry. What their mm-hmm. strengths were, what motivated them. I have three kids. They're all motivated differently. They're all good at different stuff. And what is impacting them negatively? Be their mm-hmm. advocate. Be their advocate with their teacher. Be their advocate with your school, with your school district. And when I see the same thing working badly for all of those kids and know that my kids had every possible advantage, speaking up for not your kids, going into another part of town and seeing what is happening. I mean, I know my kids were like getting killed off with a stupid kill and drill, but across town, they were losing recess. They were losing electives. 
they were losing anything meaningful and further perpetuating. So to me, again, it's listening and understanding how to be their champion. And to me, if you could be your own kid's champion and maybe just pick one other kid to bring along, because <laughs> not every kid has a parent who has the time or, you know, the, the confidence having dealt with that culturally, they may not be comfortable with the language. They may come from a culture where you don't engage at that level. And I don't know, to me, I think kids, again, they're wise till we beat it out of them. So if we could listen to them and find a way to empower kids who aren't voters yet, but will be voters, I think it would make public education go be much more responsive to their needs and, and to the teacher and, and teachers too, you know? Yeah. I really love that. It's making me think about a cousin of mine who graduated from UT not that long ago. And when I was running, I was like, I'm going to run. And he was like, most people were excited about it. Like, wow, that's so brave. Cool. And he was like, okay. He's like, I don't like voting's not really for me. I I don't know. And I don't really participate. And that hurt because it's making me think maybe he felt like a kid that wasn't listened to when he was younger in school. So like, why would anyone listen to him now if they're elected? Like just, it feels like intentional, maybe kind of beating them down so that they just sit back don't worry about this. But if we can empower them and let them know that, no, really, we do want we do want to know your priorities. How, I, yeah, just giving them more power back and, and letting them know that they are citizens and they should be a part of this because we need them. We need their voices because they have so they have so much to teach us back. They also don't necessarily see everything in the binary way that we do. You know, we were raised that you know it's this or that in everything. And so there are two parties. We say they're two, you know, like all the things I have learned from my children that there is a continuum in just about everything. And were we to leave it to the next generation, which is one reason why some people don't want young people to engage, right? People resist change if it's working for them. But I really think that if we could get out of the way, I think there is wisdom that would emerge. And can I give you just one other example? I was at the farmer's market with my youngest about a year ago. And there was a young man who wanted us to sign something. It was on animal rights or whatever it was. And I was like, okay, it's hot, but fine. We'll stop. We'll talk to him. He's like, sign my thing. He said, did you know Texas is the worst? Our governor's really bad on this issue. And I was like, "Mm, okay, I'm not that surprised, but that's fine. I said, and so I kind of said, I turned it around and said, well, you vote, right? And he said, well, and I said, well, are you registered to vote? He's like, well... No, I said, you know, this form you're having people fill out, you're going to have to hand it to someone. And if you hand it to someone who agrees with you, they're likely to turn it into a policy. But if you turn it into someone who you're already telling me does not agree with you, they're unlikely to do anything. So really the power of what you're doing is to have elected officials who agree with you. And so my daughter's like, oh, mom, you're teaching about voting. You've really, poor kid, got an airful. And I said, right. And he said, you know what? I voted once. Didn't really work out for me. And I think a lot of people get that message. And so to me, that's where there is a culture. Like you don't win every race, but you engage and then you engage with the people you disagree with and you give them, help them understand why they might be misguided, provide them with information. I mean, I just think we need to not do it. Like reach out to people the day it's time to vote. Yeah. Yeah. So that was upsetting, but that was like a cautionary tale to me. I think there's a lot of that. Yeah, definitely the relationship building 
which is long-term, which is hard because there's a lot of work involved, but the work is worth it is what I'm hearing in this conversation and some of our other conversations. Well, and it's so much more sustaining, right? Like if your response is to then withdraw and just be kind of mad and sad, right? That, that's not, that does not appeal to me. I would much rather stay engaged, be hopeful, believe that my voice matters. Like that's going to sustain me over time. I just will say one positive thing, because I think I've said a lot of negative things. I really think people above, like more now than ever need community. And all of these are opportunities for community. They're opportunities to connect around what is important to you, to learn from other people, to empower yourself and others. Like civic engagement and democracy is about the public square. And maybe if we can frame it that way, that you can get something out of this connection, maybe it will be more enticing. Yes. Well said. Nicole and I are also hoping through this podcast that it will be a place for people to find community and to reach out to us and and for us to continue the conversation off the podcast because like you're saying, I, I also very much believe that we're starved for community and we're either staying lonely or we're finding it in places that maybe aren't as healthy, but we take that because we want we want those relationships. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. But we'll we'll wrap up with something that is hopefully a little bit lighter, a little more fun. It's our last segment called Attention Mentions, where we just mention something that has our attention right now. So it can be a book or a movie or an article or an experience you had, something that's just been bubbling up in your mind over the last few days. So Nicole, do you have anything or do you have anything, I Laura, top, top, top of mind? Or you want to... I don't have to go first, but go I can for, you go, go first. first. Okay, Nicole, <laughs> well, it's, I was like, I'm smiling, but then I remember like actually what it is. Well, okay. It was Leave No Trace, a documentary. Yeah, it was just a, a feature length documentary that is available on Hulu. And it's about the Boy Scout, but it was incredibly well done because they talked about the the sexual abuse of boys that took place and the, the system that allowed it to continue for so long. But what I really appreciated, and I, I'm going to imagine that if I had been a Boy Scout, I would appreciate this about the documentary, is that they never de-emphasize, I guess, the value that Boy Scouts did provide to so many people. And so they really emphasized how they're trying to, to keep the value and what it what it offers in terms of, you know, outdoor education and leadership and the values that are baked into the core of the message and separate that from the harm that has been done. So anyway, leave no trace on Hulu. Really well done. I'm going to check that out. Me too. We always need more stuff to watch. I know. Okay. I'll share. Laura, I think you might like this. (laughs) So it's a podcast that I'm going to recommend. It's called Now and Then. And the two hosts are historians. It's Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman. And their episode this week was titled, Does Anyone Love Taxes? So they talk about the history of taxes in in the United States and the idea, like, what are taxes for? Is it to pay for our services? Is it to feel like we're part of our country? Just this interesting idea about the way our money is more than just paying for things, but also like buy-in to our government. So very fascinating. These women are so smart. I love their podcasts now and then. Nice. I'm going to listen to that. And I thought of something too. I had a few different ideas. I've been reading a lot of books like about librarians because I think it's tough to be a librarian these days. But 
I can't remember the names of those books. But so what I was going to mention was there's a show we've been watching. It may be on Netflix now. I think maybe on Showtime. It's the first lady or first ladies, but it's a series and it highlights Eleanor Roosevelt, Betty Ford, and Michelle Obama. And it really shows a lot of the things that their husbands got credit for doing that really the husbands didn't want to do, that these women found a way to get done. And it's really, I mean, it's uplifting. It's also irritating like everything else because I walk away saying those women should have been president, right? Because (laughs) they did all these great things. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating. And especially Betty Ford, who is Michelle Pfeiffer, and she's just awesome. And I didn't know anything about Betty Ford, but it's fascinating. And we've got a few more episodes of that to watch. Um, I have to, you know, space them out because I do get aggravated sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) but it's really good and it's well acted and it's interesting. And it just gives even more evidence that we should have more women making important decisions in at every level of government. That's great. I'm going to check that out. That's really great. Yeah. And I'll figure out the exact title, but it's like the first lady, first ladies, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And well, we'll put that in our show notes so folks can go find it. But thank you so much for sharing all this information and all the advocacy that you do. We really appreciate that you have, that you're so dedicated to these causes because we need people to educate our, educate us, to educate our elected representatives, because as you're saying, it's it's a lot to parse through and it's so encouraging to know that you are doing that. So thank you. For doing thank that. you all. And thanks for doing this and thanks for inviting me. Yes, of course. Thank you everybody for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics and we hope that you'll do more with us check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.